continuing our study in the book of Romans. So what we've seen in the last chapter, we saw some really beautiful truths laid out in chapter 8. Uh, back in, in verses 28 and 30, we saw the golden chain of redemption. We, so we saw Paul say that if Christ set his love on you in eternity past, if he foreknew you, he follows that, that train of thought all the way through to your glorification. That if he has loved you in eternity past, you will one day be raised up with him. It's a sure thing. Those truths are inextricably tied together. He chose you, so one day you'll be with him in glory. Amen. Amen. And he gives a pastoral encouragement that flows out of that reality, right? So if that's true, if theologically the fact that he chose you in eternity past and he's going to keep you on through eternity future, then in the face of uh, the difficulties, the trials, the tribulations of this life, he will keep you. That nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. If you have been chosen and elected, then you will persevere and you will be held secure by him. It's a, a beautiful truth, isn't it? So, if you have ever explained or tried to explain the doctrine of election to somebody, you might be able to guess what's going to come next. He lays out the beauty of the doctrine of election, and immediately he begins addressing objections to it. Immediately. Um, so Paul is going to, in our passage this morning, the first 13 verses, he's going to lay out, um, I think, what is, the, what is in Paul's mind, what seems to be the best argument against the doctrine of election. He, he's going, this is, in Paul's mind, the first thing that comes to mind is, what about this? So that's what we're going to see here in verses 1 through 13 of chapter 9. So remember, we just ended with, let's read just for a little bit of context. We'll begin in, in 37. It says, No, in all these things, the difficulties of life, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So where does he go from here? I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. But I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they're his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So you see Paul make this sudden, seemingly this sudden switch from the heights of of joy, right? Neither height nor depth, nor things present, nor things to come. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's good news, isn't it? And so he, he ends uh, that, that chapter on a high note, and then he start, starts, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience bears me witness. You think, wow, he's building up to something good here. Where is he going from here? And, and he, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. What a buzzkill, Paul. I thought we were going somewhere good. So why does Paul have this deep and continual heartfelt grief for his natural kinsmen, for his, his brothers according to the flesh? Remember Paul's background, right? He was a Pharisee among Pharisees. He was an up-and-coming Jewish leader of the tribe of Benjamin. He kept the law as well as anyone alive did at the time. He was closely identified with national Israel. That was, that was who he was. That was the core of his identity, to be a Hebrew among Hebrews. And now he's cut off from his people. And his people seemingly are cut off from him. So he, he gives us this list of things that, that should have been assets for Israel. That should have been their glory. But instead serve to highlight the bleak reality. The very bleak reality for ethnic Israel. In verses 4 and 5, you see Paul bring this out. He says, they are Israelites, and to them belong what? Belong the adoption. To them belong the adoption. Israel was chosen by God, adopted as a child of God. Do you remember uh, that passage in, in Ezekiel? I think it's Ezekiel 16 or 17, maybe, um, where, where the Lord says, uh, your, your mother was an Amorite and your father was a Hittite. So you're, you were born from the nations, and in the day that you were born, no one loved you. you. I found you left in a field where you had been abandoned, wallowing in your own blood, he says. But I took you, and I cleaned you off, and I loved you, and I clothed you, and I planted you, and I nourished you, and I grew you. That was the relationship of God with his people, Israel. He chose them. He adopted them. In, in Jose, he talks about, um, oh, I forget the exact line that he uses now, but, but he says it's like a father holding his child's hand and walking along with them. That's how he, he drew Israel along. But do you remember 
what Christ says to the Pharisees in, in the book of John. The Pharisees say, we have Abraham as our father. They're, uh, they're proud of their heritage. They, they call themselves sons of Abraham. And Jesus says, you think you're sons of Abraham? He says, God can raise up from these stones sons of Abraham, but you, you are of your father, the devil. You are of your father, the devil. Wow, that's a, that's a sharp transition, isn't it? These people who are adopted as the, as the sons of God have now been identified with their father, the devil, because they have, they have left their father. What else did Israel have? To them belong the adoption, the glory. To them belongs the glory. What's, what's the glory that Paul's talking about here? Do you remember in the desert? When Israel's wandering through the desert, they were led during the day by a pillar of cloud. The glory of God appeared to them as a pillar of cloud by day that would guide them. And at night it would circle around behind them and come between them and their enemies as a pillar of fire. When they would come uh, to the tabernacle, the glory of God would descend on the tabernacle. And Moses would go and speak to God and, and bring his commands to Israel. The glory of God dwelt literally in the midst of Israel. But if you remember a couple months ago, I guess now, we saw that in the book of Ezekiel, that glory of God departs. Israel, the glory of God, because the temple has been defiled, the glory of God picks up and leaves the temple, exits the temple, exits the city, and leaves it an empty shell. What else was Israel given? The covenants, the covenants, this contract between God and his people, Israel. He, he made a covenant uh, with, with Moses, or through Moses, he gave this covenant to the people. If you obey my law, then I will bless you. He made a covenant with David and with his sons that if you, if you follow me, I will bless you. And both of these covenants were promptly broken having been violated by both Israel and her kings, all that is left are the curses and judgments that the covenants promise. That's all that's left. What else was given? Well, specifically, the law was given to Moses, right? To them was the giving of the law. Paul's already talked about that in the book of Romans, hasn't he? What does the law do? It gives only condemnation. Only condemnation, because all have sinned. All have violated that law. In the keeping of the law, no one will be justified. What else was given? Temple worship. It says, uh, I think worship is what your, um, what your ESV will say. Some, some translations say the services. It's talking about the temple worship here. Right? God, he gave all these, um, all these smells and bells, all these rituals to point to Christ. But the beating heart at the, the center of the tabernacle and of the temple was what? It was the presence of God embodied in the ark, right? 
So the, the, the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, is where, is where God manifested and displayed himself to Israel. But if you remember, when Christ dies on the cross, one of the things that happens is the veil between, that separated the Holy of Holies where the Ark stayed and the rest of the temple was torn from top to bottom. That's a beautiful picture of access to God. But you know what else that revealed to the Jew of the day? There's no ark there. The, the veil is torn from top to bottom, and it shows an empty room. Jesus says the last time he leaves the temple, he says, I'm going to leave here, and this house will be left desolate. And it's going to be destroyed and no stone will be left on top of another. Within about a decade of Paul writing this, that's going to happen. The temple holds no hope for the people of Israel. What else are they offered? The promises. The promises. I'm thinking of the Abrahamic promise in particular. Remember what God said to Abraham? He promised him uh, that you would have a land, that you would have a land of your own, that, that you would be given a seed, a lineage, and that you would be a blessing to all the nations. In the eyes of the first century Jew, this was all left unfulfilled. The land was occupied by the Romans. They were under the thumb of Roman oppression. At some some people looking through history, uh, and some Christians look at the year 1948 almost reverentially. Um, 1948 is, is a fantastic year. Because what happened? Well, Israel was reconstituted. The Jews got their, their homeland back, right? But to this day, if you've been following the news, there is still constant strife and warfare in that in that land. Um, you remember there's one of my favorite stories uh, from David's life, a story about his mighty men. There's these David's hiding in the cave of Adullam, hiding from Saul, and uh, it's a very hot day, and three of his mighty men, his his uh, soldiers, are are standing by, and he says, "Oh, what I wouldn't do for a cup of cool water from the well of Bethlehem." And so these three guys think, well, if the king wants a cup of water, the king gets a cup of water. There's a problem, however. Bethlehem is occupied by the Philistines. So they fight their way through a garrison, and they get this cup of water, and they bring it back to David. Right? They fight their way into occupied Bethlehem. You say, well, you know, thankfully that time has passed, and Bethlehem is no longer occupied. Right? Not so. I... I met a missionary one time. He's a professor at the only Arabic-speaking Bible college in the world. And you know where it is? It's in Palestinian-occupied Bethlehem. To this day, to this day, the land of Israel is occupied by its enemies, people who want to kill them. This promise seems to the Jew, the Jew according to the flesh, to be unfulfilled. Our land is still not our land. A seed, a lineage. The Jews don't even agree on what makes you Jewish today. They don't even know if you get your, your Jewish heritage from your mother or from your father. 
So you can't even identify a Jewish lineage necessarily. So where's the seed? Well, maybe there is one, but we don't know who it is. There are people who've been scattered throughout the land. We don't even know who our relatives are. So where is the seed? And finally, this one, ironically, uh, the first century Jew could say, and the Jew today could say is true, that you would be a blessing to all the nations. Well, yes, because all the nations have consistently been taking everything that's ours. The Jews have consistently been hated by the whole world from the time, from before the time of Christ to today. So ironically, they could say, sure, we've been a blessing to the nation, but it hasn't panned out for us, has it? The situation looks pretty bleak for ethnic Israel in Paul's day and today. So the question, or rather, I'm jumping ahead of myself here, the patriarchs, the patriarchs are also given to Israel, right? The fathers, the patriarchs, that's the people who are going to be discussed in this passage today. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He's going to discuss them further, so I won't belabor that now. And finally, Paul lists from them, or from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So not only do they have the, the patriarchs, who are the founders of the Hebrew people, but Paul lists Christ, not as of them, but rather from them. He's from them, by the flesh, but he's raised up as God over not only Israel, but over all. So, the question that we're left with is, you know, you say this doctrine of election is a good thing. That it means that God shows you that he loved you from before the foundations of the earth. And the Gentile Christian could come along and say, if that's true, um, you know, let's look at God's track record here. What about the last people that God loved? The last people that God chose? It doesn't seem to be looking so good for them. The, the Gentile Christian could say. You say that God chose Israel, um, but things aren't looking up for them. If that's how God treats the people he chooses, I don't know if I want to be chosen by him. So, so Paul's going to answer that objection. In verse 6 he said, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. I know by appearances it may seem according to this bleak situation that Israel is in, it may seem as though the word of God has failed. Looking through the eyes of the flesh, things are looking pretty dim. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. How has the word of God not failed, Paul? Well, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So this is the argument that Paul responds to first. And this, this, I think, is Paul giving what he thinks is the best argument against election. It seems like the word of God has failed. However, that's not the case. And why not? Because God defines Israel. God defines the people who receive the promises differently than Israel does. He gets to 
define the parameters of who his chosen people are. All of Israel are not necessarily Israel. Now, if you haven't been with us regularly, if you haven't been listening to these sermons regularly, you might be thinking, I just wanted to give this by way of disclaimer right now, um, that we just kind of picked this passage out um, to do what is the popular thing to do in recent weeks and just kind of pile on Israel. Um, I just, if, if you are someone who's saying, oh great, I got this on the news already, I don't want to hear this on Sunday morning too, I want you to know that's not what we're doing this morning. We just, we're preaching through the book of Romans and this, but in the providence of God is where we landed. Um, so there was a, a book that I, that I read some time ago, I think it was a book on leadership by Al Mohler, and he says um, it, it's important uh, not only to be right, but it's, it's as important to be right for the right reasons. Um, so when we think about modern-day Israel, there, there's a whole segment of Christianity that is really hanging their hat on the fact that Christ is going to, to come back and he's going to restore Israel. That Israel, that really all of creation, all of history is pointing to Christ coming back to be the king of Israel. Um, but I, I'm, I'm not hanging my hat on that. I'm hanging, when I think, you know, why should I support it? What should I think about Israel today? What should I think about Israel today? Um, you look at the news, and I think Brother Eric mentioned last week, you look at the news, and, and it seems like um, people are saying, you know, well, they're committing atrocities. No, they're defending themselves, right? They're defending themselves from, from terrorists who want to kill them. So why, why do I think that it's right and good for them to do that? It's not because I think that they are God's chosen people, because clear, most of Israel is not God's chosen people. Most of Israel has rejected God. Most of Israel is living in rebellion against God. So, so why do I support them? Well, because they're, they're doing the right thing. They're defending themselves. They're protecting their people. I don't need an eschatological, uh, I don't need to believe because of future things that Israel today is in the right. No, I believe they're in the right just because they are. They have the right, just like any other nation, to defend themselves. So that's all just by way of disclaimer. I don't want you to, to think that I'm piling on Israel because the, Paul doesn't have a lot of great things to say about ethnic Israel in this passage. Um, but that's what the passage says, so I want to be honest with it. So that's just by way of disclaimer. Moving on from the news... Another thing, if Paul is talking here about national Israel and how national Israel doesn't have any claim to salvation, they don't have a claim to be God's people just because they happen to be a part of the right nation. Um, if that's true of Israel, how much more true is it of us as Americans? We don't get to... We don't have any claim on being God's people simply by virtue of where we are born and of what people we come from. That's, that's not how any of this works. And you see this in a lot of, well, any national day of prayer. Have you ever been to those things? You get, when you're in school, you go to like the, uh, 
or they call it the meet me at the pole thing. Um, you go pray at the flagpole and all that. That's all well and good. I, I'm, I'm all about praying. I'm all about seeking God's face. But we often claim uh, Old Testament passages as, as promises to us, as God's people. And that's just not accurate. You know, Second um, Chronicles 7, uh, when, when the temple is being dedicated, what does the Lord say? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and will pray and, and uh, turn from their wicked ways, then, then he's going to restore them, right? But that's not a promise to, to America. That's not a promise to the United States. The Lord has the right to raise up nations and cast down nations, and we happen to be in a, in a nation that has been very blessed with freedom, with an opportunity to preach the gospel. That's good news. Make hay while the sun shines, guys. Use that. Um, but, but don't try to claim Old Testament promises and, and think that you are somehow unique among the nations. All right? We exist in the providence of God, and we need to use those privileges while we have them. I notice no one ever claims the curses against covenant breakers for America. Are we a holy people as a nation? No, not at all. So we want to set our thinking right on that. All right, let's get back to the text. I'm ranting a little bit now. So Paul begins to define who Israel is and who Israel is not in God's eyes. He says that it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but rather through Isaac shall your offspring be named. The first thing that we see is Israel is determined by promise, not by the flesh. So salvation is not, not only is it not national, we briefly talked about that, but really what, uh, what Paul is talking about is salvation is not ethnic. It's not hereditary. It doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter what people they come from. And he refers to Isaac and, and by implication uh, to his brother Ishmael. So if you would, turn over to Genesis chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21. Kind of refresh ourselves on this story because it, this is really a key passage. Um, Isaac is sort of the forgotten patriarch in Jewish thought in many ways. They they reference back to Jacob because he's he's the one for whom they're named Israel. Remember Jacob wrestled with God and he was named Israel, the one who strives with God. And they hearken back to Abraham, who's their forefather, and sort of sandwiched in between them is the forgotten patriarch Isaac, um, who is in fact the one that that is most frequently uh, referred to and tied to Christ, which is very interesting to me. So Genesis 21, verses 9 through 19, we see that, uh, that Isaac has been born and Ishmael before him was born by Hagar, who is uh, Sarah's slave, who she gave to, to Abraham. It says, But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out the slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. So you have Ishmael, the son of Hagar. He is, he is laughing at Isaac. He's mocking Isaac in some way. 
And Sarah says, cast her out. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. You can understand his feeling, right? He has this, this boy, this son, Ishmael. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This is the passage that is referenced in our text this morning. He says, and I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning. He took bread and a skin of water. He gave it to Hagar, put it on his shoulder, along with the child, and he sent her away. So she departed and she wandered. And when the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes, and she went and sat down opposite him uh, a good way off by the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of my child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from the heavens and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and she filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. So what's going on here, and why is this passage referenced in Romans? Well, you have two sons, two sons that Abraham has. Remember, he was promised that you will have an offspring. But Abraham couldn't, couldn't wait for that promise to be fulfilled, and Sarah didn't see how that promise would be fulfilled. So she gave her slave woman to Abraham and said, have a son with him. And this is how the promise will be fulfilled. And so they, they do that. And he has a son named Ishmael. But this son, our Genesis clearly shows us, is not the son of promise. He was the firstborn of Abraham. But he was not the son that God promised Abraham. So he is cast out. And the Lord, in his kindness, the reason I included that last part there, in his kindness, the Lord saw fit to protect Ishmael. He saw fit to keep him. And he saw fit to make a nation out of him. Was he covenantally bound to do that for Ishmael? No, Ishmael was not the son of promise. But in his kindness, it pleased the Lord to bless Ishmael. Just want you to keep that in mind. That will be important in a little while, I think. Um, but we see that Ishmael was cast out and cut off from the covenant. While the Lord was kind to him, he was not covenantally bound to be kind to him. So you see, it doesn't matter that he was Abraham's son. It doesn't matter that he was Abraham's son. The Lord said that he gave a blessing to Abraham's descendants, but he gets to choose which son is the son of promise. And he chose Isaac. So Ishmael is cast out, cut off from the covenant. There's another New Testament picture, in fact, a picture from Paul, where he deals with, uh, with Isaac and Ishmael. So we'll quickly turn over there in Galatians 4. Galatians chapter 4. And we'll, we'll read a, a few verses, uh, 22 through 31 of Galatians 4, if you would. So, again, now Galatians is, is written, it's kind of like proto-Romans. It was one of the first, I think the first letter that Paul writes. 
Um, and Romans is a development of a lot of the ideas that he talks about here. Um, so here, starting in verse 22 of chapter 4, Paul says, It is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Right? So, so far, so good. We've seen this already. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. So one is a covenant that's bound by law. That's represented by, by Hagar, right? Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds, listen to this, she corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who, do, who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. He says, Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so now it is also. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Brothers, we are not children of a slave, but of the free woman. So what does Paul do here? He, it is kind of a, almost a convoluted picture that he paints here. You have to jump a couple steps. But he says there's two women. He's reminding Israel of their history. There's two women, right? Hagar and Sarah. They both have sons by Abraham. One is a slave woman, and so her son is a slave. One is a free woman, and so her son is free. But then he takes another step, another permutation to this idea. And he says, in reality, today, the, the sons of the slave woman are the sons of Jerusalem. They are the Jews, according to the flesh. They are the ones who are bound under the law. They've not been freed by Christ yet. So Paul is saying that ethnic Israel is now identified with Ishmael, with slavery, and rather than being identified with Isaac, the son of promise. So back in our, in our passage here in Romans... He says, not all the children, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So why Isaac? Why is Isaac now the, uh, the one who he's focusing on? He's the son of the free woman. Also, and I think more pointedly, Isaac is a picture of Christ. Isaac is a picture of Christ because Paul and the Jews of the day could say, you know, well, we are children of Isaac. We're not children of Ishmael, are we? No, we're descended from Isaac. But that's, uh, that's not the Isaac that's in view in this passage. Paul is talking about another Isaac, clearly. So why is Isaac the one who is, who is pointed out here? Well, he says about in verse... Verse 9, he says, For this 
is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So Sarah will have a son and it's a specific son at a specific time. There is someone in particular in view, a chosen one in view. What else is telling about Isaac? You don't have to turn there right now, but uh, in Genesis 22, you remember what Abraham is told to do? He's told, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and take him up on this mountain and offer him as a sacrifice. And Abraham does it. He takes his son, his only son, whom he loves. He brings him up the mountain. He lays him on the altar. He raises the knife. And he is about to kill his son in obedience to God. But God stops him. The knife is up and he, he takes hold of his hand. And he says, now I know that you love me because you've not withheld your son, your only son whom you love. And he says, the Lord will provide a sacrifice. The Lord will provide a lamb. That's not the end of the story that's been said before. That's, that's just the intermission. The next Isaac, the true Isaac, the one in view here, is the better Isaac. God's son, his only son, whom he loved. Who he sent into the world to be a sacrifice for men's sins. And instead of, there was no one to withhold his hand. He, that knife descended, and that was the lamb that God provided. His son, his only son, whom he loved, Jesus Christ. He is the true and better Isaac. He's the one in view here in this passage. And we are named as his descendants via our relationship to him. If you want to be a son of God, it's not going to be through ethnic Israel. That's not how you get to be a son of God. That's just like being descended from Abraham through Ishmael. If you want to be a son of God, you have to be a son of God via your relationship to Jesus Christ, the true and better Isaac. That's how you get to be the son of God. There are not two ways to approach God. It's not as though God has two people. There is the church and there is Israel. And you can get to him either way. No, there is one way. It's through his son. Christ is the true and better Isaac, the one after whom we are named. So salvation is not ethnic. It's by God's choice, not by man's works. So the next thing we see there is just that salvation, it's not ethnic, but rather um, it is, is by the promise of God. The next thing we see is that it is by God's choice, not by man's works. So the Jew could say, well, of course, of course, the, the children of Ishmael are disqualified because Hagar was an Egyptian. She was not a Jew. So of course, uh, he is disqualified. But, you know, the true line of Isaac, well, the, the true line of Isaac, they are our rightful sons, right? Verse 10. Not only so, so not only is this about Isaac and Ishmael true, not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, right? So you've got one man, Isaac, the son of promise, one woman, Rebekah. 
She has two sons, twins, Jacob and Esau. Esau comes out first. Jacob closely follows, hanging on to his heel. Verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. So if Hagar disqualified Ishmael, then Rebekah didn't disqualify Esau, the older one, did she? No. No, she was... She was the legitimate wife of Isaac, and both of these sons were legitimate sons of Isaac, and Esau was the firstborn, right? From, from the beginning of time until, like, the late 1700s, almost the entire world was governed by this one rule, right? That the oldest son inherits. If, if his father is a king, the oldest son will be a king. If his father has a business, the oldest son will have the business. He'll get the land. He'll get the farm. That's how the whole world basically was run on that premise. But God is not bound by that law, you see. Before they were ever born, before they were ever born, it says God's choice was made before they were born. So it wasn't based upon what they had done, whether good or evil. He didn't look and say, well, I know I have these two sons, um, but I really think the younger one is more qualified. He's just more fit for the task I've given him. Um, so I'm going to choose him, and the older son will just have to, will just have to make do. He'll have to make shift on his own. No, it's before they'd ever done anything, good or evil, right or wrong. You say, well, you know, you're dealing with, with mysterious things here. You're dealing with a, a God who's all-knowing. So it was before they had done anything good or evil, but God could look down the corridors of time. He could look down the corridors of time, and he could see who was going to be good and who was going to be evil. Jacob was just, he was just better than Esau. Is that right? If you recall Jacob's story, he was a con man, a coward. He was a wretch just a vile person for much of his life. There was nothing inherently good about Jacob. No, he says specifically, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of, not based on, not as a result of works, but because of him who calls. Why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? Because God before they were ever born, because God wanted his purpose to stand. He wanted everyone to know, I chose Jacob because I chose Jacob. What did he tell Israel? I love you because I love you. There is no other reason, no other motivation. God chooses as he will. Our God is in the heavens, and he does as he pleases. He did it specifically specifically so that no one else but him could claim credit. Remember Ephesians 2? It's by grace you've been saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's, it is specifically not of works that your salvation comes, because if you could lay claim to even an inch of your salvation, if you could, if you could lay claim to any little bit of it, I just... 
You know, I was just drowning in the ocean, and God threw out the 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 life vest, you know, and and I, with my dying, you know, writhing throes, I grabbed onto it. That's all I did. Well, then you tell I saved myself. I I could do that on my own. I grabbed the rope. I did it. I'm in. No. That's not the picture that the text is painting. This has nothing to do with your works. He did not choose you because of anything in you. He chose you so that his purpose would stand, specifically so that it would not be credited to you. So what does this mean? What does this practically, I guess you could say, do? So we've seen that Israel, ethnic Israel, is in a pretty dim place. We've seen that God defines Israel differently than Israel does. It is not um, based on your ethnicity, but rather it's based on God's promise. It's not based on your works, but it's based on his election, his purpose, his choice. We see, finally, the Lord's preference, the Lord's preference of true Israel. We are, let's, before I even get there, verse 13, it says, as it is written, or rather in verse 12, she was told that the old, Rebecca, that is, was told the older Esau will serve the younger, Jacob. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Say, well, that's pretty harsh, isn't it? He's not... The word that's used here for hatred, um, I don't want to downplay the very real idea of the wrath of God, the judgment that God holds for sinners. But that's not really what's in view here. He's not talking about um, a, a hatred of anger of a desire to, to punish here. You remember when Jesus says um, that unless you hate your father and your mother and your brother, you're not worthy of me. What does he mean? Does it mean that you should go home and you know try to kill your family? No. That's definitely not what Jesus is saying. He's saying that your love for your family should be like hatred in comparison to your love for me. You should prefer me over anything and anyone else. That your, your family, the things of this world, should not take priority over my commands and what I've called you to. That's, that's what Christ is saying there. And so when he talks about Jacob and Esau, he says, you, you could read it as, Jacob I have preferred and Esau I have rejected. I have chosen not to prefer Esau. There are two sons, both uh, according to the flesh, they are both eligible to receive my blessing, but I have chosen to bless one, and in choosing to bless one, I pass over the other. And that is God's choice. He's going to answer the question later of whether or not that is just. Spoiler alert, it is, by the way. Um, but he's not even dealing with that right now. He's just saying it is what it is. In choosing one, I do pass over another. So who is the Jacob in view here? It's not Israel. It is not ethnic Israel. 
The, the Jacob that is being spoken about in this passage is the true Israel. The, the sons according to the promise. The sons who are named by their relationship to Christ. And they take preference over the Ishmaels, the, one, the ones who are not sons of promise, over the Esau's, the ones who God has passed over. Israel has no priority over the church, but instead the older serves the younger. Israel, what did Israel do? Israel pointed the way to Christ, paved the way for the coming of Christ's church, of his bride. All of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the covenants, the temple service, all of these things, they were given to Israel. They were real and they were good, but they are all pointing to a better reality. That Old Testament Isaac, he was just pointing the way to the better Isaac, the true Isaac that was to come. The true Israel of God is not is not a national and ethnic Israel primarily. It is his, his new covenant people, the ones who are bound to Christ, the ones who Christ loved before the foundations of the earth, the ones who he died for. If you are a believer, that is you. You are the true Israel of God. You are a part of the true Israel of God. It was God's electing love. He chose you and he preferred you. Now just by way of summary, I, I do want to point out, again, I these things sound like hard things, especially if you're from the same kind of doctrinal camp that I grew up in. Um, so Paul is going to discuss a future for ethnic Israel um, later on in chapter 11, I think. But here, he's elevating the true Israel, that they are named by Christ, who is the better Isaac. They're named by God's choice, not by their own works. So this group of people, this true Israel, we'll talk more about this later, but just I want to give you a, a bit of a head start, I suppose. Who is it made up of? It is made up of both Gentiles and Jews. Right, Because Paul's writing. Paul is a Jew, according to the flesh, isn't he? But that's not his primary identity anymore. He's known. I, I love Romans 1. Paul says, uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ, um, set apart for the gospel. One of my favorite lines in the book of Romans is in the introduction. He, he says, I've switched majors. I used to be set apart for the law as a proper Jew, set apart, regulated by, governed by the law, but now... I've switched majors, I've, I've changed teams, I am separated unto the gospel, set apart for the gospel of Jesus Christ, marked by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anyone who can say that is, whether Jew or Gentile, is of the true Israel. This is a, a people that is not bound by ethnic barriers, a people who's not bound by location, and a people who don't, don't have to try and seek out the temple to worship God. This is a, a better covenant. And Paul is going to make much of that going on in the next uh, couple of chapters. So again, the true Israel is those who are named by Christ, who is the better Isaac. They're chosen 
or they are they are the true Israel by God's choice, not their own works. And again, this includes both Jews and Gentiles who have trusted in Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.